Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice, the podcast from GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, the editor of GP Online, and today on the podcast, I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock, to talk about the latest news affecting general practice. Coming up, we'll be looking at the final report from the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee's investigation into the future of general practice and its key recommendations. We're also discussing the former chair of that committee, Jeremy Hunt's appointment as Chancellor. We're highlighting a really important interview on our website this week with Chris Milligan, the husband of GP Dr Gail Milligan, who took her own life earlier this year. And we're talking about recommendations from the GMC that could increase the number of doctors that are able to work in general practice and the RCGP's latest push to get the Home Office to resolve the visa problems affecting international medical graduate GP trainees. Finally, we have a really lovely good news story this week about a GP from Glasgow who has written a book with his three young daughters to help educate children about the human body and raise money for local charities. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. This week saw the publication of the long-awaited report from the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee on the future of general practice. We've spoken about this inquiry on the podcast before because we've covered some of the public evidence sessions that have taken place, which has included testimonies from GPs, health officials, policy experts and politicians. So Nick, what broad conclusions did the committee's MPs come to in the report? First of all, the report makes a big point of acknowledging that general practice is in crisis. And this is something that um, GPs and organisations representing them have been saying for years. But it's something that the government or perhaps governments uh, have, have doggedly refused to admit. So for MPs on what is a, a cross-party select committee, the Health and Social Care Select Committee, to say that it's undeniable that general practice is in crisis and for them to call on the government to admit it too is a significant step. And, and what their report, which is the result of an inquiry into the future of general practice, says about the depth of the crisis is pretty stark. It says that pressures in general practice have created a systemically toxic environment. It talks about GPs dealing with multiple intensely complex cases back to back under pressure, working at speed, and in a situation where they fear reprisals against individual doctors for any mistakes that they make. So the point MPs are making here is that working in a system like this has ratcheted up the chances of GPs making mistakes, but that when they do, it's the individual taking the blame rather than the system. Pointing back to the big drop in patient satisfaction in the GP patient survey this year, there was a 10 percentage point drop compared with the previous year. The Select Committee report says that that showed the moment when the elastic snapped for general practice. The report mentions, of course, the decline in GP workforce over recent years and actually makes the point of skewering the government over the way it uses figures that include trainees to suggest the workforce is rising when it's not, which is something we've talked about on the podcast before. And it also mentions rising workload, the fact that GPs are seeing many more patients now than before the pandemic, and the fact that the cases GPs are seeing are increasingly complex because the population they're looking after is not only growing, but it's also aging rapidly. And then erosion of continuity of care is highlighted in the report as one of the most concerning aspects of the GP crisis. It says the balance in primary care has shifted too far away from continuity towards access, which is really significant given the heavy focus on access that we've seen in policy statements from both the government and the opposition in recent weeks and months. 
So those are some of the problems, and the solutions outlined are pretty significant as well. The report calls for around a billion pounds in funding from the QOF and the Investment and Impact Fund, which is basically the QOF for PCNs to be moved into core general practice funding. MPs on the committee are basically calling for a bonfire of targets, arguing that um, scrapping those two frameworks would help restore the professionalism of general practice, which they say has been stripped away through increasing micromanagement. There's also a rebuke for former Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid over his hints that general practice could be nationalised and the partnership model scrapped. The report calls GP partnerships one of the key drivers of innovation and improvement in general practice. And it says it's efficient and effective and should be supported by government. And that support that it desperately needs after hemorrhaging 22% of full-time equivalent GP partners since 2015. And NHS reforms also come in for some stick with warnings that the multi-billion pound additional roles reimbursement scheme and the rollout of PCNs have done very little to ease the GP crisis. And finally, there's a warning that one of the fundamental problems for GPs, and in fact for services throughout the NHS system, is a real lack of clarity for the general public over where patients with urgent care needs should go. The report warns that this needs to be dramatically simplified and that the current model has left people unclear when they should call their GP practice, an out-of-hours provider, A&E, or 111, and unclear about what the difference is exactly between all of the above, and that that lack of clarity is actually adding to the pressures on general practice. It's a pretty scathing report when you read through it, really, but it does really set out a lot of the challenges that, well, all of the challenges that general practice needs to face. You mentioned continuity of care there, and that was a really big theme during the evidence sessions. You know, I watched most of those. What did the final report actually have to say about continuity and what needs to happen with that? The report calls continuity one of the defining features of general practice, but it says that it's no longer standard and that Basically, government neglect has allowed it to be steadily eroded. The committee outlines evidence to support continuity of care, calling it one of the most important goals for general practice in the NHS and arguing that restoring it should be made a national priority. So the report cites evidence that higher levels of continuity of care are more efficient for GPs, improve shared decision-making with patients drive up professional satisfaction, development for doctors, and improve patients' experience of their care and outcomes, including, and this is fairly crucial in current situation, reducing hospital and A&E attendances. There's also evidence to suggest that continuity is a more efficient way to use resources rather than something that would drain the NHS coffers further if you implemented it. And again, particularly in the current straightened financial circumstances, that has obvious appeal. What the MPs say should happen is that practices should be required to report by 2024 on some form of national measure of continuity of care, and that the idea of personal patient lists for GPs should be restored. So the report defines personal lists as a system where GPs have an individual list of patients for which they're accountable, and they deliver the majority of the care to that, the patients on that list. The report says this is the gold standard of continuity, but that only around one in 10 GP practices currently run in that way. If everyone went back to that system, the committee suggests the number of patients on each GP's list could be capped initially at two and a half thousand, with a goal of reducing that to around 1,850 over five years. 
that might sound appealing, but it's worth asking how feasible these sorts of numbers really are. There are currently 61.8 million people registered with GP practices and around 26,800 fully qualified full-time equivalent GPs in permanent roles in England. So that works out at around 2,300 patients per GP nationally. But as the report itself acknowledges, some areas have far bigger shortfalls in their GP workforce. And we know from looking at the, the GP patient ratio down to primary care network level, that in some areas, the number of patients per GP comes in at around double the starting target that the report mentions. So that's a, that's a really big hurdle. And the workforce is currently falling and the population rising. So the gap is is actually only getting bigger at the moment. As I mentioned briefly, the report sets out some suggestions on changes to the GP contract, Emma. You've looked at the changes in a bit more detail. So what is it that MPs are keen to do? They do have quite a lot to say about the contract. I, mean, I suppose the main thing is what you talked about there around targets and incentives, which it's pretty clear the committee don't like at all. It was quite unsurprising that the report would come out quite hard against targets because former committee chair Jeremy Hunt, who we're going to talk about in a bit, was very vocal during the evidence sessions and also has been in the Commons about the numbers of targets the NHS and general practice in particular is subject to. Report, as you said, effectively calls for the QOF and PCN targets, the Investment and Impact Fund, to be scrapped with that money all moved into core funding. And we're talking about huge sums of money there. You mentioned it there that you worked that figure out that it's around a billion pounds a year. So it's massive amounts of money. The reason they're saying that is basically the committee say that those these targets, QOF, IIF, they've become tools of micromanagement that risk turning patients into numbers. They say the current system's overly bureaucratic and it's not really having the desired effect on outcomes and it doesn't really enable GPs to change the way that they deliver care. So what the report says is that rather than focusing on micromanaging GPs via targets, the government should be, and this is a quote, bolder and empower GPs to exercise their judgment in the best interest of their patients. So we're kind of talking about this idea that that GPs should be going back and they should decide what to do. They shouldn't be being told what to do. They should have more power to make their own choices about the best way to treat their patients. And as you mentioned there, they said if GPs are incentivized, it should be around continuity of care and not specific targets as they are at the minute. One of the other things that comes up in there, the report also says that the Carr-Hill formula, uh, which is the calculation that determines how much practices are paid based on the demographics of their patient population, they say that needs to be overhauled to better take account of deprivation. And this is something that we've been writing about quite a bit in recent years. And it's, it's definitely something I think a lot of GPs feel the formula doesn't really reflect deprivation. But the committee also says is quite worried about the way PCN funding is working as well and saying there's quite a lot of questions over whether that properly reflects deprivation. So I think they would like to see some work on that as well. And I suppose the other thing that you kind of touched on a bit there that's in the report is about partnerships. The report does make a really robust defence of partnerships. And there's a bit in there which says it's very regrettable, that's the, the word they use, that while general practice was under so much pressure, GP partners were subjected to open speculation and uncertainty about their future. And as you mentioned, that's what they're re referencing there is that report from a think tank that former Health and Social Care Secretary Sajid Javid endorsed, which called for the GMS contract to be scrapped within a decade with GPs becoming salaried. 
we've talked about that on the podcast before, but clearly, you know, the Health and Social Care Committee don't buy into that at all. They want the government to reaffirm its commitment to the partnership model and set out how it intends to ensure partnerships can thrive. What the MPs on the committee say needs to happen is that practices should be able to operate as limited liability partnerships to reduce the sort of amount of financial risk that partners are exposed to, you know, particularly as a result of last month's standing issues. And it also says that the government has really got to get to grips with the issue of premises because premises ownership is actually a real burden on a lot of existing partners. And they say it's also a big reason that puts people off becoming partners. And it kind of wants the government to look at quite a radical solution, which is the same thing that's going on in Scotland, which is where the government in Scotland has committed to effectively buy GP-owned premises. And um, the committee is saying it wants the government in England to look at the viability of that and whether such a solution could work here as well. As we mentioned, Jeremy Hunt was chair of the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee when this inquiry was going on. And he really was very much the the driving force behind it. I remember a little video of him on social media going out and talking about the crisis in general practice. But obviously, since then, he's now been parachuted back into the cabinet as chancellor to rescue Liz Truss's ailing premiership and reassure the financial markets following last month's disastrous mini budget. Hunt is the longest serving health secretary in NHS history. It was a post he held from September 2012 until he became foreign secretary under Prime Minister Theresa May in 2018. He headed back to the backbenches after losing the Conservative leadership contest to Boris Johnson in 2019. But now he's back in the cabinet. And as most pundits seem to agree, probably the most powerful politician in the country right now. So, Nick, do we have any idea about what Hunt's appointment as chancellor could mean for the NHS? Jeremy Hunt's main intervention, obviously, as you've mentioned in the week or so that he's been Chancellor, has been to completely rip up his predecessor's mini budget. Tax cuts promised by the previous Chancellor had left a massive hole in the government's finances. And part of Mr Hunt's message, along with reversing most of the plans, has been that every government department will have to find additional savings to help plug the gap. NHS England said only this month that it was facing a £7 billion funding shortfall And its primary care chief, Amanda Doyle, told a conference last week, and this is before Mr Hunt became Chancellor, that there was, and I quote, no access to additional funding coming for anything. The financial situation this winter is quite tight. So there have already been warnings from the NHS hierarchy that if the NHS didn't get more funding, it could have to pare back what it commissions from GPs. And the NHS is deeply concerned about a tough winter as COVID cases rise with the potential for flu to be in circulation as well. And following a summer in which GP workload has already been at levels expected in winter. But other departments have been laying down strong cases to avoid cuts. The MOD has been pushing back, you know, given the costs of the war in Ukraine. Liz Trust the other day promised to retain the triple lock on pensions. So maybe some of these places will avoid cuts. So as a result, cuts in healthcare, I mean, they'd be a staggering reward for the response to COVID. But who knows? It looks like the axe will have to fall somewhere. And ultimately, I guess it it could yet be the NHS, as, as shocking as that seems. Mr Hunt also has promised a Treasury review of any energy cost support for households and businesses beyond March next year. So it was a slight, it was a rolling back of the energy price guarantee that the, the government set out under quasi-carting. 
And crucially, he said that the government will aim to cut the total cost of the scheme that his predecessor promised. So that too could affect practices ultimately. I mean, they had little certainty beyond March anyway, but there had been some suggestions that practices would be you know, considered among the types of vulnerable business that might attract longer term support. They, you know, they might still receive additional support beyond March next year. As I say, you know, the government is looking to save money on that scheme. So perhaps they're going to receive less support than they might have done. And at a time when practices are already really struggling financially with rising costs across the board, let alone from energy costs, you know, any sort of diminishing of the support that they can expect on that front is not welcome. Obviously, the Select Committee report on problems for general practice that we've already discussed was drawn up largely under the leadership of, of Mr. Hunt, because he's, he's chaired the Health and Social Care Select Committee for the past couple of years. For him to inflict pain on a sector he himself says is already in crisis in general practice would be fairly shocking. He has been ruthless in the past, in particular as Health and Social Care Secretary, when he imposed a contract on junior doctors and sparked strikes. He's also in a position now to influence some key policies that he's spoken out about from a backbench position. He's spoken out against the government's two-week wait expectation, saying that more targets is the opposite of what general practice needs. So perhaps he'll have some sway over a target like that. And then crucially, I think, on, on pensions tax. Now, Mr. Hunt has warned the government about the impact of pension tax rules that are driving doctors out of the workforce, forcing many to retire early in the past. And as the BMA pointed out this week, now that he's chancellor, he's in a very good place to do something about that. You touched on some things there. There's not much love lost between the NHS and, and Jeremy Hunt. Most people remember that when he was health secretary, when the junior doctors went on strike because he imposed that contract that you mentioned. But he did actually seem to change his tune a bit about some things while on the backbenches. You've touched on some of those things there. He admitted he failed to prioritise workforce planning when he was in charge. And he was the MP that retabled an amendment to the Health and Care Bill last year that would have required the Secretary of State to publish a report on how the government intended to assess and meet NHS workforce needs once a parliament. I mean, obviously, MPs voted against that. Now he's back in the cabinet. It's quite doubtful how much of that will actually continue going forward. One issue among the very many difficult issues that the government's going to have to contend with in the coming months is possible industrial action by nurses. And also, as we talked about the other week, junior doctors are going to be balloted on industrial action early next year. Hunt is not someone to shy away from that sort of conflict, as as we've mentioned. And given the state of public finances we've just talked about, I would hazard a guess that the prospect of extra money for pay deals seems really quite bleak. Before we move on to our next discussion, I just wanted to highlight a really important story that we've published on our website this week. This is an interview with Chris Milligan, who is the husband of Dr. Gail Milligan, a GP partner from Surrey who took her own life earlier this year. Dr Milligan's death really rocked the profession when it happened. It prompted the BMA and RCGP to call on the government to do more to protect doctors from spiralling workloads and to take steps to address the unmanageable demands in general practice. I spoke to Chris a couple of weeks ago for this piece. The reason he talked to me is that he really wants people to understand what happened to Gail and how she reached the point she did. And he wants to do this in the hope that it might make someone else stop and think and realise that they might be in a difficult position and need to get some help. He really wants to try and make sure no other families have to go through what his family is dealing with. 
I don't really want to talk through the story here on the podcast because I think it's really important for people to read Chris and Gail's story from Chris's point of view. So we'll put a link to that interview in the description for this episode. But one thing I did want to mention about this is when I talked to Chris about what lessons he thinks can be learned from Gail's death, he said he doesn't believe that general practice is a safe place to work anymore, especially for GP partners. He told me that there needs to be measures in place to limit workload and also protected time to allow GPs to decompress following difficult cases or situations at work. He also wants to see more proactive intervention to identify and then support GPs who may be struggling, which he says is especially important for partners. He said that the problem at the minute is that GPs have to put themselves forward for that help. And he doesn't think that Gail would ever have done that. I really urge people to read what he has to say, because this is such an important issue. And I'm really very grateful for him for speaking with me and allowing us to help him raise awareness of this. One other quick thing. While suicide among doctors is very rare, it's really important that we don't underestimate this issue. After we did the podcast interview with Dr. Helen Gar from NHS Practitioner Health a couple of weeks ago, we got hold of some figures from the service that suggest of the GPs that are contacting NHS Practitioner Health each month, around 80 of them are experiencing suicidal thoughts. And that's really worrying. And as Helen said on the podcast, these numbers are probably the tip of the iceberg because these are the people who have recognised that they need help. So if anyone is listening to this and is concerned about themselves or a friend or a colleague, I would also encourage you to listen to that podcast interview with Helen, which is episode four of this series, series three. There's lots of practical advice on that. And we've also put a link in the show notes to a page on our website that lists all of the organisations out there that provide support and help to GPs and other healthcare professionals who are experiencing mental ill health. This week, the GMC published its 2022 workforce report, which called for changes to the performers list and the potential creation of a new grade of specialist and associate specialty doctors or SAS doctors to help widen the pool of doctors that can work in primary care. Nick, you've been looking at this. What are SAS doctors and how does the GMC think they can help general practice? Yeah, so SAS or SAS doctors are experienced senior doctors with at least four years of full-time postgraduate training, two of which are in their specialty of choice. They, they work mainly in hospitals, but they can work across hospital and community settings. And the GMC's big idea is that this pool of doctors, which is among the fastest growing subset of doctors in the NHS, could be used in part to support general practice. Lots of doctors recruited from overseas become SAS doctors. And the GMC says they're growing, it's actually six times faster than the headcount number of GPs on its register. The, the GMC argues that the NHS just isn't making enough of these doctors, partly because of restrictions on how they can be used. One of the changes it's suggesting is redrawing the rules on the performance list, which is the list of doctors allowed to work in general practice, to enable these doctors to come into play in primary care and support the general practice workforce. So how have the BMA and GPs reacted to this idea? I think at the moment, it's fair to say that they're on the fence, perhaps at best. I think that the main thing is there's quite a lack of clarity about how exactly this would work, what exactly those doctors would be expected to do in primary care, how they would interact with existing GP practices and, and doctors and multidisciplinary teams. Within those practices, the BMA's SAS committee chair said that there are many unknowns about this proposal and that it will need some serious discussion among the profession to determine whether it's something that SAS doctors could back. You know, they need 
basically more clarity about what exactly the role would be, what training would be required, what support would be available to those doctors, what kind of induction, what terms and conditions they would be working on. I mean, that's a factor just because for someone who currently works in a hospital, you're obviously employed on a, an NHS contract, whereas if you start working in a GP practice, potentially the terms and conditions are a little bit different. So would there have to be some kind of standard model? I don't know. I mean, that, that, that's obviously probably a, a detail to be resolved after someone works out what exactly they would do. But you've got to say, I mean, there's a definite need for people to come up with some potentially radical solutions. We've got large numbers, record numbers of GP trainees at the moment. And yet, obviously, as we know, general practice is, is losing workforce in terms of full-time equivalent, fully qualified GPs every month, every year, pretty much. Something needs to change to bolster that workforce quickly. Training new GPs is not something that happens fast. Perhaps this could be part of the solution, but at the moment, it's an idea and not much beyond that. So Emma, this week, the RCGP stepped up pressure on the Home Office to do something about the problems around visas for international medical graduate, newly qualified GPs. This is something we've talked about on the podcast previously. So what's happened now? Yeah, this is an issue that's been rumbling along for quite a while. But so just to bring people up to speed on what the problem is. So GP training is a three year programme, unlike all other medical specialties, which take at least five years. So the issue is that when international medical graduates or IMGs come to the UK to undertake specialty training, they are effectively sponsored by the training programme. After you've been in the UK for five years, you're entitled to apply for indefinite leave to remain. But obviously, at the end of three years, newly qualified IMG GPs have to find a workplace sponsor in order to get a visa to remain here. So this is a major issue because a lot of practices aren't currently tier two sponsors and almost half of all doctors in GP training now are IMGs. So there's this real potential that these GPs will qualify and after the NHS has spent thousands of pounds training them, won't actually be able to work. Earlier this year, we wrote about the fact that some GP trainees have received deportation letters shortly after they've qualified because of the rules. So this is a really ridiculous situation. The RCGP wrote to the Home Office earlier this year asking it to sort the problem out. But basically, the Home Office rejected the solutions put forward by the college at that point, which included granting indefinite leave to remain for IMG doctors upon completion of GP training or offering an automatic three-month visa extension to allow more time for doctors to find work. So the RCGP has now written an open letter to the Home Secretary. Well, it was it's the former Home Secretary now, Suella Braverman, but they've written this open letter demanding an urgent solution to the problem, which has been signed by 4,367 GPs and GP trainees. And, and what is it that the college is saying that the, the government should do? Right. So alongside the letter, the college also sent a copy of a new report it's produced called Fit for the Future, Opening the Door to International GPs. So they sent that report to the Home Secretary as well. The report contains some real life testimonies from GPs who've been really affected by these problems. Um, and it also puts forward some solutions. And it sets out the scale of the problem. So a new survey by the college found that half of IMG trainees have difficulties with the current visa process. As a result of this, the survey found that 30% of all IMG trainees are considering not working as an NHS GP and 17% are considering leaving the UK entirely. And the RCGP says that these figures suggest that a potential 1,165 GPs are in danger of being lost to NHS general practice, which is just ridiculous given that we've spent so much money training these doctors. So 
the college says it's also been working in recent months to try and get more practices to become tier two sponsors. But it warns that despite this, many IMGs are still struggling to work. The report says that if all GP practices in the UK were to become tier two sponsors, it would cost the NHS over four million pounds. It also points out that practices usually only apply to become sponsors when they find a doctor they want to recruit. And this process can take up to eight weeks and sometimes much, much, much longer. That causes significant stress and anxiety for doctors because of the tight deadlines involved with needing a visa. What the college has done now is put forward three options and it says any of these the Home Office could take and they would solve most of the problems and help increase the GP workforce. So the first one is one they've already put forward, which the Home Office has rejected, which is basically offering IMGs the opportunity to apply for indefinite leave to remain when they complete specialty training, GP specialty training. The second option is to create a new post-medical training visa, which would allow trainees to stay in the UK for two years. uh, And that's similar to a current graduate visa. And the third thing is basically to work with NHS bodies in each of the nations, uh, four nations, to create an overarching umbrella body to act as a sponsor for all IMGs. Um, RCGP Chair Professor Martin Marshall says that at a time when general practice is experiencing the most severe workload pressure it has ever known, which we've talked about today, it is nonsensical that the NHS is going to the expense of training hundreds of GPs each year who then face potential removal by the Home Office because of an entirely avoidable visa issue. And um, I couldn't agree more, really. I mean, this is an issue that could be really easily resolved. And it does beggar the belief, really, that the Home Office is not prepared to take steps to do something about it. I suppose one factor with this is that it might be worth the RCGP changing the name on the, the top of its letter and sending it again, given that we're probably on the third Home Secretary since they first contacted the government and put some of these proposals to them. So who knows? Perhaps the environment will have changed since last time they asked these questions. We've just got time for our good news story before we go, and I really love this week's. Dr Paul McNamara is a GP in Port Glasgow Medical Practice, which is in a town outside of Glasgow in Scotland. The practice is one of the deep-end practices, which are the practices serving the most deprived populations in Scotland. During lockdown, Dr McNamara decided to write a children's book in partnership with his three daughters, Isla, age nine, and Emily and Freya, age seven. He says he wanted to do something creative together that would keep them busy and show them that anything is possible with a little dedication and belief. The result is a book, I Love My Teacher's Guts, which tells the story of a science experiment that takes an unexpected turn when Sally shrinks to the size of a microscopic particle and finds herself trapped inside her teacher's body. What follows is a real-life anatomy lesson as Sally travels through the bloodstream and organs, learning amazing facts as she goes. Dr McNamara says he hopes the book will introduce children to the wonderful world of anatomy and to inspire the next generation of medics, scientists and lovers of books. Some of the profits from the book are going to local food banks and mental health charities. You can read more about this on GP Online. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening and thanks to Nick. I'm back next week when I'm joined by a very special guest who during his career has been both chair and president of the Royal College of GPs, President of the BMA and Chair of NICE, Professor Sir David Haslam. We're talking about his new book, Side Effects, How Our Healthcare Lost Its Way and How We Fix It, about what we can do to fix the NHS. Please join me then. In the meantime, don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice on our website, gponline.com. 